1: Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of world sport and we talk with the author. My guest for this episode is Iago Colas, professor in the Department of Comparative Literature and the Residential College at the University of Michigan. We are discussing his new book, Ball Don't Lie Myth. Genealogy and Invention in the Cultures of Basketball, published in 2016 by Temple University Press. As Iago explains in our interview, he is a lifelong fan of basketball and a fair player who still regularly joins pickup games. For the last five years, he has taught a popular course at the University of Michigan called The Cultures of Basketball a course that always concludes with a three-on-three tournament among the students. In his book, Ball Don't Lie, Yago takes an approach to the sport much like what he does with the students in his course, looking critically at the narratives that surround basketball, the contexts in which they developed, and the assumptions and prejudices that they're rooted in. The result is a refreshing and illuminating look at the history and culture of the sport. In our interview, we reach all the way back to the game's founding by James Naismith in 1891, and we finish with the NBA Finals between the Cavaliers and Warriors, starting just as we recorded our conversation. I'll warn listeners that in the early minutes of the interview, our connection had some technical glitches. Please stick with us through the static. You'll want to hear Iago's insights all the way to the end. Here is our interview. My guest today on New Books and Sports is Yago Colas. Iago, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bruce. I'm excited to be doing it. All right, so let's uh, uh, start with introductions as we typically do uh, on the podcast. And I will say, to begin, that Iago is Professor of Comparative Literature at the University of Min- Michigan. And like many of us doing research in various fields of sports studies, Iago, you did your early research in other fields, uh, more accepted by dissertation advisors and deans and department chairs before moving to sports. So could you tell us a bit about your academic background and, and your basketball background, and then what led you to to bring these interests together?
0: Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, well, I'm a lifelong basketball player and fan, um, still recreationally, but academically. Uh, in college and graduate school, uh, my areas of uh, my degrees are in literary studies and uh, specifically interests in fiction and narrative and their relationship to their social contexts. So uh, for a good, gosh, two decades um, after receiving my Ph.D., I did all my scholarly work in the area of interpreting uh, literature. In its social setting, um, about five years ago, um, I think motivated by a variety of factors, some of which I kind of talk about in the, the beginning of the book, um, I found that I was more and more interested in some writing that was being done, kind of in on the margins of journalism by some thoughtful basketball uh, writers, bloggers, and so forth, and found that they really resonated with um, issues that I had been. Exploring, kind of, let's say, philosophically or theoretically in my literary studies work. And at the same time, I found myself less and less interested, honestly, in keeping up with the field of literary studies, both with the scholarship and even with some kind of, to some degree, with new fiction coming out. And uh, so it was kind of, in some ways, a moment where I really felt the need to try something new um, to kind of rejuvenate my interest. In my professional work. And um, with encouragement from my wife and from friends, I turned to basketball uh, as really the sport that I have always played and that I've most loved, and and that I've always really, in some way or another, thought about uh, in terms of the stories that it generates. And so I began with a course, an undergraduate course. You mentioned that I teach in comparative literature. I also teach in the residential college at Michigan, which is um, a kind of experimental unit within the larger university. And my colleagues there were very uh, open to my trying out a course on the cultures of basketball. So I started that without really realizing, honestly, a little bit to my uh, embarrassment now, uh, the very substantial work that a lot of other scholars had already done um, on sports and culture and sports history. So I was kind of winging it that first semester about five years ago. But over time, um, I think I've done a pretty good job of familiarizing myself with the field and um, developing the course further and some other courses as well. And, and that, over time, uh, led first to a lot of writing on the web and then a couple scholarly articles and now um, the book that just came out.
1: Mm-hmm. I want to I follow up on, on uh, your course, Cultures of Basketball. And, and you've written and, and spoken elsewhere in other venues about the course and the effect that it's had on you as a teacher and scholar and the, fact, the effect that you've seen it's had on students. And so uh, can you tell us now it's been about five years that you've been teaching the course. What are, what are the most striking lessons that, that you've gained from teaching that course?
0: Well, uh, yeah, that's, it, it may be hard to narrow them down. There are so many. It's been absolutely transformative for me. Um I think you know one of them as a teacher is just how important it is, and I think any teacher probably knows this, but how important it is for oneself and for one 's students that one have a strong passion for what they are teaching um, consistently that 's a thing that I hear back from students that that they find really engaging that i 'm clearly loving what i 'm doing so it 's a kind of obvious lesson I think uh, no teacher gets into the profession for the money, um, or really for any other reason than the love of teaching. But over time, you know, we all need ways to kind of get back in touch with that passion. And that's, that's been one very basic lesson. Um, but other lessons, I think, uh, I've realized the degree to which sports can serve as a kind of Avenue of entry for students from all kinds of backgrounds, whether those be scholarly or just life experience backgrounds to kind of access, other kinds of scholarly material that aren 't exclusively related to sports, so in my case um, it 's an opportunity to introduce them to basic ideas about how narratives work, uh, how to interpret narratives, how to connect narratives to the sort of functions they serve in society and and I found that students really can connect to those ideas better because they, in a sense, already have an intuitive understanding of that because those narratives are working on them as sports fans. So that's another one. And I think the last one, uh, you know, at Michigan, as y- you're aware, um, you know, it is a major athletics program, college athletics program. And so I've had the opportunity to teach athletes in my courses, including basketball players. And that has given me, I think, a, a similar activity than I might have had before, to kind of studying sports, that is that the athletes that we assume as objects um, are also human beings, young men and women, um, who at the college level certainly are um, you know, juggling all kinds of pressure demands. And to have them be in a classroom sharing their perspective and their experiences on the subject matter of the class has been really um, illuminating, I would say, and added a kind of layer of depth and complexity to my understanding, uh, but also I think to the understanding of their classmates, uh, who have really, I think, come to appreciate more deeply and respect what their peers who are athletes at the university are doing. So all of those things have been really kind of things I did not expect when I was going into this process five years ago.
1: Mm -hmm. And you are a, uh, you're a great fan of college basketball. You're a great supporter of your students who play college basketball. Um, sure. And you've written about college basketball, but you write mostly about the NBA in your book and professional basketball. Can I ask why?
0: Um, yeah, I guess I think that uh, there's a couple of reasons. I think that um, the sports are sufficiently, that is basketball as played at the NBA and level and basketball as played at the college level. And I'm speaking of men's basketball now. Um, are sufficiently different to really warrant uh, a different kind of focus. Uh, That is, at least if you are taking into account the institutional frameworks, the markets, uh, and the broader cultural frameworks. So, you know, one of the things I realized the more I got into the course and into the scholarship is, you know, basketball is really a vast and internally heterogeneous kind of realm of culture, And, uh, I may have got into it thinking of it as a little bit more monolithic and something that I could sort of just write about in, in general ways. But, um, but I found quickly that I was going to have to narrow the focus if I was going to do an adequate job of addressing the complexity of the sport with some nuance. And so given that, of course I had a choice. I could talk about a lot of different kinds of, um, basketball. I think I went with the NBA because, um, for one thing, as a fan, it's my favorite form of the sport. Um, I think that uh, as probably the elite league uh, in the world for basketball, uh, it and certainly in terms of economic and cultural impact, the most significant um, and impactful, it, it sort of sets a tone um, against which other forms of basketball sort of, I wouldn't say necessarily measure themselves, but perhaps are measured uh, and in some ways, uh, patterned uh, with differences, of course. So I feel like understanding the NBA is a really uh, key element to understanding a lot of other forms of basketball, whether that be the WNBA or college ball or AAU uh, or even pickup ball on playgrounds. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, Yago, let's turn to the book. And uh, uh, I want to ask you first about the title. Ball Don't Lie. And, uh, and I'll ask you, what is, what's the source of the title and, and what does it mean? Okay. So, Ball Don't Lie is a phrase made popular
0: by Rashid Wallace, who was a, he's now retired, was a forward uh, for many years in the NBA, originally for Portland and then Detroit, uh, and then briefly at the end of his career, Boston. Um, and while, particularly while he was with Detroit, Um, he made this phrase, uh, well known, um, when a foul would be called on him or a teammate and the opposing free throw shooter would miss the free throw. If Rashid felt that it had been a bad call, he would shout out ball. Don't lie. Um, and what he seemed to be conveying with that was that the ball was in a sense demonstrating, um, a kind of cosmic basketball justice that the call had been erroneous in the first place. And the phrase originates on in playground basketball, uh, originally in urban areas, but if you could hear it anywhere now, I, I would say, um, when there is a dispute over a call um, and it can't be resolved, uh, then the two claimants will agree to shoot for it. And so one player will shoot, let's say, an uncontested shot from the top of the key And whoever's claim is upheld by the result of that shot uh, may say, ball, don't lie. Um, So that's where it comes from. And she, as I say, is the one who made it popular. And I really found it uh, as a, I guess, as a literature person with a particular kind of sensitivity to the density of language and all the meanings that even brief Phrases can carry. I really found that it was a kind of perfect uh, condensation of a lot of the issues that I wanted to address through the book, and that I find fascinating in the culture of basketball.
1: Mm-hmm. So, the, so the book is organized around what you call different myths of basketball. And, and I want to ask you, as a, as a scholar of literature and culture, then what do what do you mean by these myths of basketball? And I think this probably connects to uh, talking about the title. And, and then what do you aim to do with those myths in the book? Right.
0: So um, um, by myth, I, I, I meant not necessarily to suggest that some story about the game was blatantly or patently false, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I, I want to capture the way in which Uh, the game generates stories or narratives that convey beliefs about the game and sometimes about the world outside the game. Uh, And that those beliefs tend to be held quite tenaciously by their adherents, regardless of whether they are true or false or how true they may be. So that's the sense of myth that I was drawing on from scholarly studies of myth, really, that have nothing to do with sports. Mm -hmm. And I was interested in usually when we study these myths, we imagine them, that is as literary scholars, as ways in which a society or civilization or collective expresses certain kinds, not only of beliefs, but fantasies about the world and their place in the world. And so I was really thinking about myth in basketball, kind of on an analogy with that, imagining basketball as a sort of universe... And the stories that it generated as the myths that that express what those who purvey them believe and want to be the case about the sport. And so I was framing them that way and then trying to kind of initially analyze them just from a literary point of view. How do they work? What are the metaphors or narrative structures that they draw upon that help them uh, to be convincing to those who purvey them and consume them? And um, so that was that's kind of the, the thing that I do in the first part of each chapter. Uh, and then I'm interested also in situating those myths historically, understanding when they emerged in the history of the game, what was going on in the society that might have made them also especially convincing or desirable um, uh, for those who were uh, kind of recirculating them, let's say. Um, and then finally, in each chapter, I also try to counter them. That is by offering a different version of a story of, about the important figure who is the object of those myths. Uh, a story that I think um, is a little bit truer to my understanding of the spirit of the game and that can undo some of what I consider to be the occasionally harmful social and political work that those myths do sometimes without the intentions of those who purvey them.
1: Okay, so we'll look at a few of those, those myths in the, sure. in the interview, and, and we should start with the myth of creation, which is uh, how you begin the book. And uh, so basketball, unlike sports like like baseball or soccer, has, has an origin story that seems to be set firmly in history. So James Naismith invented the game at the Springfield YMCA in 1891. We even have historical evidence of the founding, the rules that he wrote, for that first game but but in your view why is this historical event why should we uh or, or how is it better understood as myth okay so uh, the way that i it is it, everything you just said is true we have the rules
0: that he originally wrote um well we don't have them they have them at kansas but um but yeah we have those documents we don't know the exact date, but we know that it was of 1891 and that it was at the Springfield Y. We have Naismith's own account of the invention of the sport. Um, what I was struck by there was a kind of recurrent fascination exhibited by those who had written popular or scholarly histories of the sport with that, with, that, with, with their ability to precisely pinpoint this moment in which the sport came into being. And I guess for me, that struck me as a kind of odd, initially through the metaphor of birth. So the idea was that the, the sport was born. Um, oftentimes it was compared to the birth of Athena from the head of Zeus, mm-hmm. uh, full, fully formed. So there was a kind of tension in the metaphors that were being used to describe or to express this fascination with this singular origin point that both suggested that the game went from non-existent to existent in a single day um, and existent in its kind of fully formed um, shape. And at the same time, through the metaphor of birth, that it was somehow a kind of organic, evolving thing. So I was trying to kind of understand what is it about that that, lets, that, that leads us to that fascination when – Historically, we know from Naismith's own account that while he did set down the rules in one night, he did that after uh, several weeks, about six weeks of trial and error in the gymnasium with his class. After he'd been asked to invent a new sport, he was going into his uh, class in the gym, trying out different versions of new sports and finding them, you know, for various reasons to fall short of his aims uh, until he finally having kind of troubleshot those failures, come up with some basic principles that enabled him to set down some basic rules that got the game going, um, but that very quickly changed also. So rather than a sharp delineation between no basketball and fully formed basketball, I saw a process of back and forth between a thinker and players and players who were thinkers and a thinker who was also at times a player. Um, kind of experimenting with ways to make this game work. And that struck me as something that was in some ways hidden by the myth of the myth of creation, right? Obviously the sport is as played now is nothing uh, like what it was uh, in 1891. But the truth is that already by 1892, the sport was very different than it was in 1891. So, I was interested in why it is that our culture would need to suggest that basketball had a static, fixed, kind of intangible essence or identity that could persist over time. Mm-hmm.
1: And this is an important theme you carry through the rest of the book is the, uh, the creative influence of those who play the game. Correct. Yeah, I find that really
0: a fascinating part of the game. You know, going back to your earlier question about what I kind of have learned in teaching the sport, it, I think that partly derived from um, the stories of those students in my class who play the game um, and realizing how different the game looks to those who play it by comparison with how it looks to those of us who watch it or analyze it from the sidelines. And so I, I really became interested in that um, tension. And the ways in which I see, perhaps because of my literary and kind of aesthetic background, the players as creative artists Mm -hmm. who are continually working with kind of the received materials of the game, but also improvising and transforming it every time they play. And in that way, pushing the game forward, sometimes with the aid and sometimes against the resistance of institutional administrative authorities or fans or, or what have you.
1: So, like most most myths, the the myths of basketball that you discuss in the book uh, express certain morals and and I'll ask what are the what are the morals that come out of the the myth of basketball's creation? Right. So the the, the
0: morals I would say have to do with primarily with cooperation and unselfishness, um, teamwork, effort. Uh, that That those are important qualities um, to be cultivated. Uh, it is of course a kind of cliche that sports build character, um, but sports weren 't always thought of as something that you know could be an instrument for character building in fact, for a long time, sports were thought of as kind of diabolical pursuits. It was only in the late nineteenth century that Sports really came to be promoted as a means of cultivating moral traits. And Naismith was certainly very much part of that movement and and invented the sport in part um, as a way of contributing to that movement. He had intended to be a, a preacher um, and found um, in the course of obtaining his divinity degree that he could be more persuasive as a sort of moral proselytizer um, by working Through athletics and physical education, so he devised the sport to to accomplish all kinds of ends. But among them, uh, we find the desire to create a sport that would put a premium on cooperation, unselfishness, balanced with individual initiative and kind of hard nosed effort. Um, And these were not only kind of timeless moral qualities or timeless and nasimist view moral qualities that were desirable, but also in the context of uh, the Gilded Era in American history, they were seen by a number of social reformers as traits that were really necessary to kind of attenuate the widening gap uh, between rich and poor and the kind of excesses of unbridled individualism uh, in the American economy and society at the time. So those morals were sort of set in stone uh, in a way through this myth. Um, and, uh, and you know, they embody themselves in tactical recommendations that are evidently enough an important part of the game, that it's important to move the ball, um, to be unselfish with it, to be unselfish when you don't have the ball by moving without it, to help out on defense, and, and so forth. So those things that are tactically um, advantageous elements of basketball right from the start also always carried a moral freight.
1: And from the start of the book, you also uh, make clear that the myths of basketball and the morals expressed by those myths are interconnected with questions of race. And, and there's a key term that you introduce. I think it's in in your opening chapter on the origins of basketball, uh, that, and this is a term that follows through the rest of the book. And this term is the white basketball unconscious. So, Uh, so could you, what do you mean by that? Right. That's a, I'm glad you
0: asked. Uh, yeah, it's a tricky kind of term in some ways. Um, so I guess to put it simply, what I mean is that there are certain white basketball unconscious, I guess you would think of it the way you think about the unconscious more generally, uh, that is as a sort of repository of thoughts that we don't necessarily are not aware of and, and, and. And don't allow to come to consciousness. But these are thoughts that pertain to basketball specifically, and that are ways of understanding that relationship between tactics and morality as somehow essentially tied to the maintenance of white privilege in society. So it does white basketball unconscious does not mean it does not the white in that does not refer to the individual who may hold the ideas. Um, nor to the individuals to whom the ideas may be applied, but rather to the broader kind of social structure of, of white privilege in this country that basketball at times has, um, served to kind of support and specifically has served to support whenever, in my view, uh, that set of tactical recommendations is tightly bound to a set of moral traits viewed as superior. And those are, and those in turn are kind of associated, um, with a timeless essence of the sport and with a form of the sport played by white Americans, primarily in the first half of the 20th century. Can you give us an example of that kind of play? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, So, the so-called Big Apple style of basketball, which was really when basketball became huge uh, as a national sport in the 30s and 40s through college games played at Madison Square Garden, was a really patterned style of play. The sport was still segregated at that time uh, at the college level and uh, certainly for the most part at the pro level. And it involved um, a, a lot of movement without the ball, a lot of movement of the ball kind of long possessions resulting in either long set shots or layups and and was primarily played on the horizontal plane. In other words, the sort of vertical dimensions that basketball invites because of its elevated goal were not being exploited by players at that time. And so as that form of the game became popular and seemed to incarnate the principles that Naismith had set forth through the rules um, of the sport, um, it really crystallized as the embodiment of, of the essence of basketball in ways that after World War II, when the game began to desegregate um, and African-Americans began to transform the game in certain ways on the court, um, you really came to see a challenge to that particular view of the sport. And that's really the moment when, in my view, historically, the white basketball unconscious kind of springs into being as a way to manage the tensions created for fans – players, coaches, by the fact of these new forms of basketball being inaugurated by African-American players that were simultaneously desirable, but also feared because of what might be lost in
1: the process. Well, that leads us in then to talking about, uh, controlling institutions in basketball, something that you had mentioned earlier. And, uh, and being a, being a historian, one of the concepts I appreciated that, that you bring out in the book is this idea of the modern basketball state. So, uh, can you tell us how this, this modern basketball state develops and, and how does it, how does the state use its authority?
0: So by modern basketball state, I was kind of thinking of an analogy with um, sort of the birth of modern European states, and, mm-hmm. and then in particular, the ways in which uh, those states all have their own origin or foundational mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. myths about how they came into being. Um, in the case of basketball, over the course of the 20th century, um, the game sort of built Uh, from the bottom up. So initially popular in um, the YMCA and then in uh, the amateur athletic union, though a very different version of it than what we see today. Um, And then the high schools and the colleges. And then uh, eventually as those sort of first generation players came of age, a sort and a kind of assortment or patchwork of professional leagues Um, as this sort of, Consumer viability of the game came to be demonstrated in the first 25, 30 years of the 20th century. And especially with those college games that I mentioned, sport entrepreneurs came to see uh, it as desirable to try to kind of corral the value generated by basketball players and uh, to find a way to kind of monetize it. And so while there had been a viable, more or less community-oriented Professional league called the National Basketball League from 1935 um, through the 40s, uh, it was mostly in small markets. Right after World War II, a group of hockey arena owners um, in the Northeast primarily uh, were looking for ways to fill their arenas on off nights. And uh, hit, noting the popularity of the college game in Madison Square Garden, uh, decided to form a professional league known as the Basketball Association of America. And they existed uh, with the National Basketball League. They coexisted, that is, uh, for a few years. But um, over time, the deeper pockets of the Basketball Association of America owners um, helped to drive the NBL out of business. Uh, and, you know, partly by luring some of the better NBL players over to the BAA. So, at that point, so 1949 is when the two leagues merge uh, and form the National Basketball Association, or NBA, that we know now. What I found interesting in researching that is that the NBA uh, describes its own point of origin as 1946, which is actually the formation of the BAA, not the NBA. And my interpretation of that uh, kind of historical revisionism is that uh, the NBA wishes to identify itself with its parent that uh, was the owner's league, the BAA, whereas the NBL was considered to be a player's league. And so the NBA kind of chooses to trace its lineage back to this owner's league. And I think that in that way, it expresses um, a sort of interest that institutions, specifically the NBA, but I don't think it's only the NBA, have in subordinating players uh, and their creative kind of prerogative to the interests of an association in that case, or in in that sense, that kind of manifests itself in other ways as well that we've seen at times, whether it may be rules on eligibility, the NBA has a moral character clause in its constitution um, or, uh, regulating forms of play, we saw the NCAA outlaw the dunk for nine years between 1967 and 1976. So there are different ways that these institutions, once they are able to consolidate power in a state-like fashion, um, are able to regulate or at least attempt to regulate uh, the autonomy of players on and off the court, much the way that states do so with citizenship laws and, and other laws. Mm-hmm
1: go another another of the myths that you discuss is the is the myth of the rivalry and specifically the rivalry between wilt Chamberlain and, and Bill Russell. And uh, And I think it's fair to say that there are not many analyses of athletic rivalries that have as their starting point a discussion of Cartesian <laughs> dualism. So So I'm gonna ask you, how is it that Descartes helps us to understand the rivalry between Wilt and Russell?
0: Okay. That's a good question, Bruce. Um, yeah, I would say this. Uh, when, you, when you really look thoroughly at the various manifestations in newspapers and books of the, account, uh, you know, the accounts of this rivalry or supposed rivalry between Chamberlain and Russell, what I noticed uh, was that uh, Russell was f- repeatedly associated with certain kinds of intangible qualities, um, Not just moral qualities or moral traits, uh, self-sacrifice, hard work, um, persistence, determination, and so forth, but also uh, intellectual qualities. Um, It's a kind of, it's apparently a true story, but it is also a frequently repeated story that um, Russell's kind of famous defensive play is something that he first developed in his own mind. Uh, that he began to imagine the things that he might do on the court and how he could become effective as a defender before implementing them in practice. By contrast, um, most of the accounts of Wilt Chamberlain uh, describe him in physical terms. Uh, His size, um, his strength, uh, what is characterized as natural ability for the sport or natural athletic ability. And so when I kind of you know, I guess I would say distill those comparisons down. What I saw was that Russell was associated with the mind and Chamberlain with the body. And when I saw that, um, you know, as with my background in literature and philosophy, I couldn't not see um, Cartesian dualism and the mind body split and the belief that the real uh, essence of the human being lies in the mind uh, and therefore, that is the thing to be prized and cultivated, whereas the body is a kind of transient um, phenomenon. And of course, this is something that gets uh, also, um, I guess, overlaid with uh, Christian beliefs in the immortality of the soul and the transience of the body. So th- that's that's how Descartes helps me kind of understand a little bit one dimension at least of why, uh, that rivalry myth should take
1: the form that it does. And then you stir up the dualism though.
0: I want to stir up the dualism. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, I was really struck by the dichotomy, uh, set up between the two of them as though we have to choose. Uh, and I think, you know, the chapter begins, um, with a tweet from a friend of mine who says something like, you know, you see, uh, two basketball players. One has, you know, eleven rings. The other has thirty-one thousand points, and you think you have to choose. What the hell is the matter with you? Um, and so, I was kind of struck by that way of putting it. And through some other research I've done, I, I was struck by the kind of dichotomy or the binary thinking involved—the either-or. And in one theory that I refer to in the in the book, uh, that is a kind of thinking that is particularly used by children. Um, as a way of getting an initial grasp on kind of bewildering complexity in their world. And, of course, we sports fans who purvey these myths are not children, but in many ways we may also be confronting kind of bewildering phenomenon. So my hypothesis was that um, Russell and Chamberlain, Russell first but then Chamberlain, um, really represented a challenge to basketball fans and basketball culture at the time by being dominant Black superstars who were um, not only celebrities but who were transforming the game completely beyond recognition um, by playing that kind of vertical dimension that we um, that I mentioned earlier and I think that in response to that, um, here comes the white basketball unconscious sort of generated a fantasy that one of these players was an acceptable embodiment of these timeless basketball traits, humility, cooperation, unselfishness, intellect. And the other was a dangerous threat to those very same qualities. That would be Wilt Chamberlain, who was viewed as selfish and uh, naturally talented, but not willing to work hard and and so forth. And by creating that myth of the rivalry, The white basketball unconscious was able to begin to accommodate itself to the presence of dominating black players while being able to maintain or preserve the idea that there was this kind of timeless essence of the game that was going to persist uh, throughout, even despite these new kind of social changes.
1: So later in the book, you you look at another key rivalry in in basketball history, that between Larry Bird and, and Magic Johnson. Uh, but that rivalry uh, functions differently as as a myth of basketball than the rivalry between Wilt and Russell. Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah. So what strikes what, what struck me there, um, and again, you know, I, I, I hope it's coming across that kind of what I'm looking at primarily is what are the what are the narrative forms that these the discussions of these moments or players are taking. And what really struck me as the recurrent preoccupation or point of emphasis in discussions of bird and magic was their friendship, Um, indeed, their love. And um, so I I kind of tried to understand, well, why is it that at that moment in time, we should be so interested in the fact that these two players um, formed a friendship and really a deep love for one another? And what I, again, this could only be kind of speculative, but I think that it's, it's backed up fairly well, as much as these kinds of interpretations can be, that at that moment in history, when they first played their NCAA final game in 1979, still to this day, the most watched basketball game in television history, um, the NBA was uh, losing ground, uh, losing popularity. It was perceived as too professional in the sense that players were um, exhibiting kind of mercenary attitudes. They only cared about contracts. Uh, And it was perceived as too black uh, by mainstream fans, let's say, and by especially those who were marketing the game uh, at the league level and for television um, networks. And meanwhile, the college game was rising in popularity. And Bird and Magic kind of really symbolized that sort of moment of ascendancy of March Madness and the college game over the pro game. Then they enter the league, and it becomes a means, I think, for the NBA to present them as a kind of unit, a couple that will appeal to a broad audience uh, in ways that later certain players may do all by themselves. Michael Jordan is who I'm thinking of. But at that time, you've got Magic playing in Hollywood, a black kid with a really exuberant personality, a great charismatic smile, a joyful style of on-court play. And you've got Bird, the more taciturn, working-class white kid playing in Boston. Um, So in a certain sense, you have a polarity between the two that might offer itself for the consumption of very different demographics, but by emphasizing their love for one another and the qualities they shared, a passion for the game, unselfishness, hard work, competitiveness, uh, they become this kind of biracial embodiment of that timeless spirit of the game that is able to carry forward those values in this uncertain era kind of bringing the NBA back from this moment of crisis so that it could once again compete with the college game in a certain sense by pretending to kind of make itself up after the college game. You've got these hardworking, hustling players. They're passionate about the sport um, and they're biracial, not too black.
1: Yago, you mentioned in your book, you, you mentioned a few specific plays. So, so episodes that happen within a game and and their broader significance. And one of these is is Allen Iverson crossing Michael Jordan in 1997. Another is is Dr. J's famous reverse layup against the Lakers in 1980. So uh, so on any night that you watch a basketball game, the other night when I was watching the playoffs, there there were multiple instances when I went wow over over a particular play. Yeah. So what is it in your view that that takes? a particular player causes a particular play. So an event that lasts only a few seconds within a game to become something like a, a cultural touchstone or or a defining artifact of the game.
0: That's really a great question. Um, you know, that's something I guess that's easier for me to talk about in hindsight um, because, and that leads me to feel that, you know, one of the elements of that, has to do with how the play is received in the culture, who is talking about it, um, and what are they saying about it. So, I think that that's an important component of it that you really can't know in the moment. Um, however, I would say this: um, the Iverson Jordan uh, moment is a is a good example of this. I think that. Even before the play happens, I think those plays that are carried out by players who are already freighted with certain cultural meanings or importances by fans or the culture more generally um, are going to be the plays that have lasting impact. Mm -hmm. So uh, the AI cross of Michael Jordan, you've got a player in Jordan who is at the top of his game who uh, embodies a combination of athleticism with team success, with corporate polish uh, that was really lucrative for the NBA. And then you have, facing him, this rookie um, sort of icon of a hip-hop generation that was coming into the game at that time, um, precisely at a time when the NBA, given Jordan's earlier retirement, was beginning to think about what they were going to do when Jordan left for good. They needed a new Jordan. Uh, And what they got were these younger players who were not necessarily interested in pitching themselves in the same kind of crossover polished way as Jordan was. So you've got those two personalities before they ever happen to square off on the court. Once that happens, though, um, whatever happens in that play is going to become culturally significant uh, in the way that sports, in a sense, always are culturally significant. Going back to Jesse Owens uh, and before that, Jack Johnson. Um, that is athletic contests come to serve for us as repositories of broader social and cultural investments. So, you know, the average NBA play may make you go, wow, it certainly amazes me, but not every play is going to have that cultural significance unless the people involved or the moment, um, is already invested with that cultural significance. So I think we saw some of that last year in the NBA finals, um, when Steph Curry and his phenomenal Warriors team was facing off against LeBron James and this sort of you know um, injury decimated Cavs team, we saw uh, LeBron offering one of the greatest individual performances we'd ever seen in the NBA Finals, but doing a kind of um, workhorse load uh, carrying for the team. A lot of one on one isolation play because you know his best teammates were injured meanwhile we saw curry and his teammates you know moving the ball uh easily and quickly with a number of different scoring threats and i think that that isn't a single individual play but as a kind of contest gives you a sense of the ways in which people could invest given them sort of myths and the histories of the sport um in one side or the
1: other uh in that contest and that, that brings us up to this year's NBA finals, which are, are uh due to start. They'll be happening when when this interview is is posted. Uh so it'll be a rematch between LeBron James and the Cavaliers and Steph Curry and the uh Golden State Warriors and, and your book finishes with it with a chapter on LeBron James. Uh I'm not gonna yes. ask you about that chapter though. Instead I wanna ask you about what will be the last chapter in the second edition of your book. And that's going to be your chapter on Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors. So, so what <laughs> myth, <laughs> what myth do you see at work with with Curry and the Warriors? Oh boy, yeah, um, I see every myth at work. Uh,
0: I feel a, a friend of mine today who has just uh, just got the book and, and was just finishing it wrote me today to say that he now understands some of my feelings about Steph yeah, Curry and yeah. the Warriors because he sees them as the sort of beneficiaries are the heirs of a hundred years of basketball myths. Um, and I do too, but I, I want to hasten to say that uh, they play spectacularly good basketball. Um, they are an amazing collection of individual talents, creative, artistic, improvisational. Um, they seem well coached. They seem to play with a lot of joy and, uh, and they're excellent. I mean, there's no, I have no criticisms of the way they play the game, but I'm really interested in the way in which the culture has rallied around them and well beyond sort of the usual NBA fan base um, and kind of positioned them as the future of the game. So uh, I think that we see a lot of things at work here. Um, Among others, we see Curry uh, as um, having perfected the three-point, I mean, perfected is probably not the right word, but really taken three-point shooting to another level and um, as an effective, the most, perhaps most effective tool in the game. And that's partly a product of uh, the analytical insight that three-pointers are, um, after uncontested shots at the rim, the most efficient way to win basketball games. Um, But it's also, I think, you know, we get attached to that because uh, we can imagine doing it. Uh, In other words, a three-point shot is something we imagine Curry got good at by just practicing it. And I think it's true. He did get good at it by practicing it. I don't think we could do what he does, um, even with the same level of practice. But I guess it's proximate to us in a way that a LeBron James – tomahawk dunk in traffic is not something we really can imagine we do. And I feel that fans differ in this. Some fans like to watch the game because they like to see things they know they could never do, and some fans like to watch the game because they like to see things they can imagine themselves doing. And I, I think that Curry is a more identifiable player from that point of view of what his kind of signature skill is. But even and also more because so, he's more
1: slight in build than... Yes.
0: Yes. I, that's the other thing, is that at 6'3 and relatively slender, Curry is a guy that you could see walking down the street yeah. and you wouldn't necessarily think anything about it. Um, whereas LeBron James, just to take one example, um, at 6'9, 260 is a guy that if you walk down the street, you would immediately stand out. He's darker skinned uh, than Curry. Um, so there are different ways in which, you know, these are not things that I think are said explicitly, uh, but they come out in the culture. Um, in more subtle ways just today. In fact, I saw an article that, um, Arkansas football coach had told his team last year or last fall, I guess that his team needed to be a bit more Steph Curry and a bit less LeBron James by which he meant, um, more team oriented, which strikes me as just kind of absurd. If anybody's ever watched LeBron James play basketball, Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a few players this generation who are less selfish, LeBron James. But I wonder why it is that people nonetheless form the impression that he is somehow an avatar of this kind of selfish me first mentality that has so often been attributed to African-American players in the history of the sport and why it is that Steph is, is the embodiment of the sort of selfless team version of the sport. Um, those things get at deeper issues in our culture and, and tensions that we have not resolved that I think we are still trying to kind of put to rest through these fantasies about that we project onto basketball players. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, Yago, we're almost out of time. And and to uh, get close to wrapping up, I want to ask one thing throughout the book uh, that I appreciated was this idea, as I said earlier, of of your notion of the state of basketball. uh, And then you describe the transition to the empire of basketball. I like these political analogies that you yeah. use, uh, but you also refer to yourself in the book as a lifelong citizen of basketball. And so wow. I'll ask you, as, as a citizen of the sport, how do you understand your relationship to these uh, these structures you describe, the, the state and the empire? And, and what are you hoping this book offers to, to other citizens of basketball?
0: That's also a really good question. Um, I think I really wanted to be clear that I am um, in love with this sport. Uh, even the things that intellectually I may resist in the culture and the stories that get circulated around players, say like Steph Curry, you know, my heart still jumps every time he crosses the court with the ball cuz I don't know if he's going to pull up right off the bat and hit a 35-foot 3 um you know off balance or something like that and and that's exciting to me. So, you know, I love the game really in almost all of its forms uh both to play it and to watch it. Um but I also um or maybe because I love it so much, I I want to understand better what things get in the way of fully appreciating what we get to see every time we watch a basketball game in terms of the talent, the effort, the artistry, the intensity, the commitment of the players who make the game. And and so I guess I want this book to help those who love the game like me learn to love it better by finding ways to disable some of the kind of pernicious and unnecessary stories um, that we tell about the game that really don't add insight and on the contrary, uh, obscure, uh, what's really great about basketball.
1: So can I close by asking about Bill Simmons? (laughs) Oh God, you're going to get me in trouble.
0: Uh, (laughs) Look, here's what I think about Bill Simmons. Um, I think he has uh, an incredible eye for talent. Um, I think that he can be entertaining my concern is that um, he, and I think ESPN more broadly through its 30 for 30 documentary series, but, but Simmons in the case of basketball with his book, has come to be for a certain younger generation of fans a substitute for actual history. That's a concern for me when my students come into my class and think that they know the game or its history because they've read the book of basketball or seen some of the 30 for 30 documentaries. Um, there's a lot more to the history of the sport and of its place in American society that can than what can be accessed through those materials. And that's a concern for me. And that's, you know, to some degree, you know, my antagonism to Simmons is not a personal antagonism so much as a desire to be sure that one voice doesn't come to be the only voice of history where the sport's concerned.
1: You've been listening to an interview with Iago Colas about his book, Ball Don't Lie, Myth, Genealogy, and Invention in the Cultures of Basketball, published by Temple University Press in 2016. New Books in Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like religion, politics, biography, popular music, and more. Go to newbooksnetwork.com to find the subjects you are interested in. If you like what you heard here, please follow us on Twitter at newbookssports or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.